0: Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would speak now for the upbuilding of your church and for the filling of the world with your glory. We pray that your word would resonate in our hearts and we pray that you would communicate clearly with us and cause us to cherish, The scriptures as we should we pray Lord that the Bible would be what we love that it would be the lamp for our feet and the light for our path that this text says it is and Lord we pray that as a result of our time considering this word this morning we pray that you would cause us to hate the false ways to be disgusted with the things that have formerly tempted us Lord, we ask for an emotional revulsion against the things that your word says are displeasing to you. We pray that you would cause us to feel this at a gut level, cause us to hate sin, we ask. Make us holy, and Lord, if there are those here who don't know you, we pray that your word would pierce their hearts, that it would be sharper than a two-edged sword, that they would hear and that faith would come by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We are uh, still, at least in my mind, in Reformation season. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, we had October 31st, 2017, 500 years after uh, the nailing of those 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church. And so you're going to get another Reformation-era opening illustration this morning. So I want to tell you, last last week I read to you Luther's confession at the Diet of Worms. And today I want to tell you about uh, some of the buildup to that confession. So uh, everybody knew that, that the Roman Catholic Church and the emperor had summoned Martin Luther to this city called Worms. And there was all this disturbance, all this dispute, there were, there were even uh, riots and brawls in the streets, and there was all this propaganda from both sides. And um, some of the propaganda is, is humorous, in, at least I think it's funny. Uh, and so I'm going to read you a piece of propaganda from the, from the Protestant side that was in circulation uh, in worms, as, as Luther was called to account there. This is a parody of the Apostles' Creed. And um, I'm not going to stop and explain what simony is as I read through this, so I'm going to tell you what simony is before I read this. Um, simony derives, the, the, the meaning of the word derives from Simon Magus, whom we read about in the book of Acts, who tried to buy the Holy Spirit from Peter and Paul. And so the practice of, of say, selling a, a, a church office and I mean, this is complicated somewhat, but in in the time leading up to the Reformation, the Pope and the bishops, when they had influential churches uh, that had um, a well-paid pastorates, essentially, they would sell that office to the highest bidder. And so anybody that contributed a lot of money to the Pope, uh, they might get that office, and then that person would have a good in- income as the pastor of that church. That's simony, the buying and selling of a, of a church office. So this is what the Protestants said should be the true Roman Catholic uh, Apostles' Creed. I believe in the Pope, binder and looser in heaven, earth, and hell, and in Simony, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the canon law and born of the Romish church. Under his power, truth suffered, was crucified, dead, and buried. And through the ban, descended to hell, rose again through the gospel and Paul, and was brought to Charles, the emperor, sitting at the pope's right hand, who in future is to rule over spiritual and worldly things. I believe in the canon law, in the Romish church, in the destruction of faith and of the communion of saints, in indulgences both for the remission of guilt and penalty in purgatory, in the resurrection of the flesh in an Epicurean life, because given to us by the Holy Father, the Pope. Amen. Uh, that is not what we believe, and we have, we have been delivered from such travesties by the Word of God. So we, we are a group of people who sincerely believe that what we're doing at this church, what we believe in this church, and, and what we practice in this church is what the Scriptures teach. We hold to sola scriptura. We hold that the Bible alone tells us what to do and what to believe and how to, how to practice things as we go about worshiping the Lord. That's what we believe. That's what this text in Psalm 119 says. It is about. It's about the beauty and glory of the Word of God. So I would encourage you to open a copy of the Bible. If you brought one this morning, wonderful. Um, if you didn't bring one, there's a copy in the in the pew in front of you. Um, I think we should resist screens. I think my wife thinks I need to grow in this, but I think we need to resist screens. So I would encourage you not to look at the Bible on a phone unless maybe you're supplementing an actual text that you're looking at. I I think it's just really good to have a a physical thing, a a book in front of you that you can turn and look at. Um, So that's just we can we can talk further about that later if you'd like. But that'll keep you from getting distracted by text messages or tweets or other alerts or things like that that might come up. I would encourage you to look at the Bible, a book. We're going to start in verse 97 of Psalm 119, and we're going to go through four sections of this uh, 176-verse psalm that is broken into eight-verse units. And and just to kind of give you a, a lay of the land where we are, there are 22 eight-verse sections of Psalm 119, and uh, they break down, they, they sort of break in half, two sets of 11, and the way they break in half is, is you've got uh, two at the start, two at the finish, and then you've got two sets of four, and then you've got two at sort of the, the top at the or the middle, and, and so we're at the first set of four in the second half. That's where we are. Lord willing, next time I'm in the pulpit, we'll be in the second set of four, and then we'll have two more sets of eight. And we'll, be, we'll, be, uh, we'll have completed, uh, I, I don't say we'll be done with Psalm 119. Hopefully, it will occupy us for the rest of our lives. But we will have completed our trek through Psalm 119. Look at verse 97. If we don't feel this, we need to pray for this. Oh, how I love your law. The word law can be a little bit misleading. Uh, we're not talking about just... Uh, strictures and statutes here. The word here is Torah. Oh, how I love your Torah. And Torah is a way of referring to the five books of Moses, and it's a way of referring to instruction, God's instruction for us. So the psalmist is saying, oh, how I love your Torah. It is my meditation all the day. Now, to help us sort of try to get our arms around the way the psalmist is talking about the Bible... I want, to, I want to employ uh, a, a sort of parable here with you this morning. So I would invite you to imagine a long pipe. And, and there's a creator of this pipe, and the pipe is big enough for people to walk walk through and live in and 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 spend their whole lives in this massive pipe. So that's sort of an analog to the world. And and the pipe, it has a beginning and it has an end. It it has a creator. And the Creator has put people into the pipe because He wants them to make progress through the pipe and then come out the other side into a glorious realm in which they will enjoy His presence. And and so He puts people in the pipe for a reason, the Creator does, and He gives them clear instructions. But this is a pipe, which means that it's dark in places. It means that parts of the pipe can be depressing and discouraging. But if you've got the instructions, if you've got the instructions, it's almost like you've got magic pixie dust. And what happens as you think about the instructions is that light starts radiating from you in the darkness. And this light that radiates from you in the darkness, it, it exposes other things that are in the pipe. Um. and and with the instructions, the magic pixie dust, with the instructions come the promises that when you come through the the exit uh, hole at the end of this pipe, you will enjoy enjoy rewards that are beyond your imagination. Things that that cannot be put into human language, things that would would simply short circuit our our synapses and uh, brain connections. It would just blow all of our circuits there are also enemies in the pipe. And what these enemies do is they set traps, they dig pitfalls, they make oil slick, slip spots, anything to hurt people trying to make progress through the pipe. And sometimes the enemies are more subtle about what they're doing. Because in addition to these overt snares, what they do is they also come up with ways to make parts of the pipe seem, seem like the end. They make parts of the pipe seem so attractive that you actually want to stay there forever and just live there. And then they, they create these messages and these narratives that communicate that the pipe is all there is. So you might as well stay here and enjoy. And some of them have built side shafts that wind up going nowhere. And, and then they make these turnoffs seem attractive and pleasant and certainly easier than continuing to make progress through the pipe. They've tried to subvert the instructions these enemies have. They've presented their temptations. They've offered alternative explanations for how the pipe got there, what it's for, what your purpose in the pipe is. And they claim that, that this pipe is all there is and that there is no exit hole. But if you have the instructions, if you have the instructions, what happens is as this light radiates from you, you see the traps for what they are. You see the snares and and these shadows that might otherwise have looked intriguing, like maybe it would be a fun thing to explore. They get exposed for what they are. And the nature of the enemies gets exposed. And, And this, I suggest, is how the psalmist is talking about the Bible. He's saying, Psalm 119, verse 97, Oh, how I love the Torah, because without it I would be lost Without it, I wouldn't see the dangers. Without it, I could be so easily deceived. And so he says, it's my meditation all the day. I think about it all the time because I need these instructions. And then he goes on. Notice, notice how I've talked about how these eight-verse units, they, they, they sort of break into half into two four-verse sections. Notice how in verse 99 he's going to say, your testimonies are my meditation. So this first four verses here is is given to meditation on the scriptures. And the psalmist is going to say that meditation on the scriptures gives him superior understanding. Understanding for dealing with life in ways that other people are not able to deal with life. Look at what he says in verse 98. Your commandment... Makes me wiser than my enemies. As I was as I was thinking about this, I was I was struck by an an article about about David Hume that said this about David Hume, famous philosopher, 1700s. He once joked that he would give up writing his six-volume history of England to concentrate on attacking the Lord's Prayer and the Catechism while recommending adultery and suicide. Why would he do that? Why would he recommend it? Because he doesn't believe in God. He doesn't believe in God, and he thinks that these, these commandments are somehow oppressive restrictions on people's enjoyment of life. And so he wants to attack the Lord's Prayer and the Catechism and recommend adultery and suicide. Look at verse 98. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies. Enemies say, no, just indulge yourself. Enjoy this trap with its iron jaws that will smash the bones in your leg and leave you crippled for life. Adultery is not pleasant. Adultery will ruin your life. Fantasizing about adultery is not wise. The commandment gives us a wisdom that says, I cannot tolerate such thoughts. I cannot cultivate such desires. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies. How? Look at the end of verse 98. For it is ever with me. How is the commandment ever with him? Because he's meditating on it all the day. End of verse 97. It is my meditation all the day. He's not saying, I've got this big scroll and I've got this big satchel, and I carry the huge Torah scroll around with me everywhere I go. You know, they didn't have technology in the ancient world to make these little uh, onion, onion paper-thin uh, pages. So to carry the Bible around would really be cumbersome. It would probably take multiple scrolls. That's not. He's saying it's in here. It is ever with me, talking to me. It's my meditation all the day. It's ever with me. Verse ninety-nine. When he says here, I have more understanding than all my teachers, the sense of understanding that, that is here, it, is it, this is a verb that communicates skill at life and, and successful attempts. So he's talking about uh, a skill that makes you successful at life. And he's saying, the scriptures have given me greater skill than even the people that taught me. Where does this come from? He says in verse 99, I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. Now think about the pipe again. The maker has testified to the person in the pipe. The maker is, test- he's giving instructions, Torah, and he's testifying. And, and this psalmist is saying, that's what I meditate on. So he's talking about long, deep thought. But it's not just Meditation. We're talking about long, deep thought that results in a desire to obey. So look at verse 100. I understand more than the aged. So he's wiser in verse 98 than his enemies. He's more skillful in verse 99 than the teachers. And he has greater understanding in 100 than the aged. And look at the reason. For I keep your precepts. He's talking about doing what the law instructs people to do. And the psalmist is saying, "This is you think about this. This is an audacious claim the Bible makes. The Bible is saying something like this. If you do what I say, you will have greater skill at life. If you do what I say, your understanding will deepen and increase. The Bible is claiming to have a kind of magic pixie dust power in your life. To make you better. Do you believe it? I, I, I love this, this question that one... or this, Yeah, this question that's one author wrote about John Calvin's understanding of the Bible. Um, he, he, he's sort of responding to the way that, that Calvin preached with this boldness and this courage. And, and, the, and the writer, he says, What if you came to believe that... As sure as you are alive, right here, throbbing in your hands in front of you is the very word of the living God. If you believe that, doing what it says is going to change you. Thinking about it is going to change you. Uh, Before I read verse 101... I want to think with you a little bit about why we don't do what the Bible says. Why do we sin? I think there are larger things at work in our culture, in the pipe, if you will, that make the side shafts seem like the right place to go, that make the snares seem like a happy thing to explore. There are things at work in the atmosphere around us that make disobedience attractive. And, and uh, I want to read to you uh, a quotation from a guy named Christopher Lash in his book *The Culture of Narcissism*. But, but before I read this, I want to. There's some things that he says that um, that that are not in this quote that I want to introduce from from broader context. He talks about the way that our society has really rejected the past, and 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 part of this has to do with the way that families are no longer. Uh, all together in one place where you know you've got extended generations behind you and everybody lives together and 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 so we have this we have this society where we're disconnected from the past and then we we also in addition to this many people in our society they're not thinking about the future either and and just this week i was reading an an article written by a guy who has gotten to be 30 years old and his mother asked him um uh, you're 30 now are you thinking about getting married and maybe having children and he said to her, he said, Mom, nobody in our generation wants to get married because of climate change. Now, that, that may seem like a strange thing for somebody to say, but th- this guy is talking as though all of his friends agree with him, that it would be a bad idea to have children because of climate change. So there's this disconnect from the past, previous generations, and a disconnect from the future. And in the midst of this, we're, we're cut. it's like all we have is the current moment. All we live for is here and now. And and Lash writes this, Plagued by anxiety, depression, vague discontents, a sense of inner emptiness, the psychological man of the 20th century seeks neither individual self-aggrandizement nor spiritual transcendence, but peace of mind. Just trying to get rid of the anxiety. Under conditions that increasingly militate against it. Therapists, not priests or preachers, have become the principal allies in the struggle for composure. He turns to them, therapists, in the hope of achieving the modern equivalent of salvation, mental health. Therapy has established itself as the successor to religion. And then he he goes on to write, he says, uh, this is not because therapy is actually uh, rational or scientific, but because modern society has no future and therefore gives no thought to anything beyond its immediate needs. So I, I, th- I think that this atmospheric in- influence around us is making us people who struggle with delayed gratification. It's making us people who are more susceptible to temptation because everybody around us is trying to gratify immediate felt needs. Lash Lash grows on. He writes, Even when therapists speak of the need for meaning and love, they define love and meaning simply as the fulfillment of the patient's emotional requirements. So love and meaning are just about my emotional needs. It hardly occurs to them, nor is there any reason why it should, given the nature of the therapeutic enterprise, to encourage the subject to subordinate his needs and interests to those of others, to some one or some cause or tradition outside himself. Love as self-sacrifice, meaning as submission to a higher loyalty. These things, love as self-sacrifice meaning as loyalty to a higher cause, these things strike the therapeutic sensibility as intolerably oppressive. How often do we hear the word oppressive in our, in our culture? This is, this is the way that people think about calls to take up the cross and follow Christ. This is the way that people think about calls to live for something beyond what you desire right now. You're oppressing me. They're offensive to common sense they're injurious to personal health and well-being mental health this is the end of this quotation mental health means the overthrow of inhibitions and the immediate gratification of every impulse that's where we live that's where we live and and this is what makes it so it makes us so desperately need the scriptures The scriptures have to overwhelm in our hearts and minds all of the pressure from that culture that I just read to you about. The scriptures, the truth of the scriptures, the fact that there is a history, we are tied to a past, we have a heritage, there is a future, the pipe has an exit hole, and and those traps and snares, those are not ways to gratify yourself, those are things that are going to kill you. The scriptures have to define these realities for us, otherwise... We'll never make it. We won't continue. So look at verse 101. Look at what the psalmist says. I hold back my feet from every evil way. This is a man who is saying, yeah, I have opportunities to sin. Yeah. There are ways that I could gratify myself. I could take advantage of situations. And my response to that is I am choosing to hold back my feet from that, that Path that shoots off into transgression. I am holding back my feet from the evil way in order to keep your word. Why does he do that? Because he's convinced that it's more rewarding in the end to keep the word of God. He's convinced that his purpose in being here is to make it to the end of that pipe. And there's more that we'll see. Verse 102, I do not turn aside from your rules. For you have taught me. God, the living God, has been this man's teacher. You, God, in what context does teaching happen? In the context of a relationship. This is a guy who is saying, I am experiencing a relationship with the living God. And the influence of Him teaching me makes me want to obey. I do not turn aside. I could. The, 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 The side shafts are there. The, the shadows where all kinds of things happen are there. But I'm not turning aside from the instructions because God has taught me. And then look at what, verse 103. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Listen to this statement in Proverbs chapter 5. And, and we, uh, Gabe read this earlier in the service. Proverbs 5, verse 3, For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. There are things in the pipe that are going to seem like they're better than what's after the exit hole. But this psalmist is not saying, he's not lamenting the fact that the, the commandments and the instructions make it where he doesn't get to enjoy the honey in the mouth of the forbidden woman. No, he's saying, I love The Scriptures, how sweet are your words to my mouth? Sweeter than honey. You see that in verse 103? Sweeter than honey to my mouth. It's better. It's better. It's experientially better to walk with God in obedience. Verse 104, through your precepts I get understanding. This is a a depth of understanding that this man has, has lived out. And as a result, he's saying, therefore, I hate every false way. How do we define the false ways? From the instructions, from the Scriptures, from what God says is right and wrong. That's what determines what's false and what's true. So this first section, verses 97 through 104, is about meditating on God's Word and then the resulting desire to obey. I think if you will meditate on the Scriptures you will experience a desire to obey increasing. And then when you get away from the Scriptures, when the Scriptures aren't with you, when they're not continually uh, with you, as verse 98 says, for it is ever with me, then other things might start seeming more attractive. And you need to get the Scriptures back with you. You need to lay hold on God's promises and on God's Word and experience God's presence mediated through the Word to you by the power of the Holy Spirit. Verses 105 through 112 are really just going to say the same thing in a different way. Again, what he's going to say is, meditating on the scriptures makes me want to obey. Look at verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. There's the pixie dust, you know? It's like every step of obedience, every step in the right direction, it's like the path lights up in front of you. And you see, oh, that's not... That's not an intriguing, curious, inviting, mysterious, wonderful shadow to explore. That's a hole where I would wrench my knee and I might not be able to walk anymore if I, if I step there. That's going to kill me. That's going to ruin my life. And if the light has shown on the path, you want to walk in the same way, don't you? Your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. Look at his reaction to the, the enlightening power of the scriptures in verse 106. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it. It sounds like he's making a covenant, doesn't it? The language here is, I've, I've sworn, I've taken the vow, I've, I've made the oath, the, the kind of statement that says, let the, the curses of the covenant fall on me. Let what was done to that animal happen to me if I break this covenant. And then the, the, the language of confirming the covenant is language of, of I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this stand in my life. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules the word is good. The word is true. The word is righteous. These people telling me there is no right and wrong. These people telling me that instant gratification is all there is. The, the people telling me that all that stuff's just oppressive, uh, puritanical, prudential, unnecessary regulation of your desires. That's unrighteous. That's false. Verse 107 I am severely afflicted. It's hard in the pipe. It's cold. It's dark. It's, it's, it can be frightening at times. There are these enemies trying to entrap and ensnare you. There are all these people talking other messages in your ears. I am severely afflicted. Look at his response in verse 107. Give me life according to your word. Make me alive as the scriptures talk about and then I think that this, this this oath that he swore in verse 106 is what he's talking about in verse 108. Accept my free will offerings of praise, O Lord. This is an interesting development within the pages of the Old Testament. You know, the the, the Old Covenant we think in terms of free actual physical free will offerings made at the tabernacle in the temple. And then in the New Testament, you know, we read in Hebrews 13 and other places about these, these offerings of praise that we're going to offer up. But here within the Old Testament, from a heart that wants to obey the Scriptures, he's, he's using this covenantal language of swearing an oath to keep the Bible. And, and speaking, I think, of that oath in verse 108 as a free will offering of praise that he wants to be pleasing in the Lord's nostrils. Accept my free will offering of praise, O Lord. And teach me your rules. You notice how he had already said in verse 102, you have taught me. And he's still asking in verse 108 here, teach me more. This is the experience of knowing God. You want to go deeper and you can always go deeper. We will not exhaust our knowledge of the Lord. We will not exhaust the truth of the scriptures. We will never come to the end of his goodness. In verse 109, when he says, I hold my life in my hand continually, I think what he's saying is, I am constantly threatened by death. It's dangerous to live here. It's dangerous. And in spite of the life-threatening circumstances, but I do not forget your Torah at the end of verse 109. They're trying to kill me. They're trying to ensnare me. They're trying to crush me. And I'm thinking about the scriptures. That's what the psalmist is saying. Verse 110, the wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. The thing about the snares of the, of the wicked, the most insidious snares of the wicked, is that they can make them look attractive, can't they? They can make them seem enticing. How is the psalmist avoiding them? The light on the path. The word exposes, that's not an enticing snare. That, that's a killing snare. And then verse 111, your testimonies are my heritage forever. You hear what he's saying? This is what my father passed on to me. You, you think about what somebody who lives only for the present has inherited and what they will pass on. Nothing. You know what they're going to inherit? Remorse. Regret. Shame. Ruin. Woe. And then they're going to stand at the judgment throne of God. They have no heritage except regret. But look at this heritage. Your testimonies are my heritage. This is a man who's saying, what my father passed down to me was the knowledge of you communicated in the Scriptures. And what I'm passing on to my children as the most precious heirlooms that our family could ever possess, what I'm giving them is the truth of God's Word. The knowledge of the living God. The way of life. That's my heritage. And it's never going to come to an end. It's going to last forever. Your testimonies are my heritage forever. For they are the joy of my heart. This is a guy that's not, he's not moping around because he can't uh, dwell in the tents of the wicked, uh, as, as other Psalms talk about. He's not lamenting the fact that he can't explore those offshoots. He's saying your word, your testimonies, verse 11, those, 111. Those are the joy of my heart. And as a result, verse 112, I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. This is a, a commitment that goes along with that oath in verse 106. A commitment to continue on the path of obedience to the end. Um, this next... This next section, verses 113 through 120, is joined to the the following one, 121 through 128. Look at the way 113 says, I hate the double-minded, but I love your Torah. And then look at 127. I love your commandments. And then at the end of 128, I hate every false way. So you've got hate, love in 113. And then you've got love-hate in 127-128. And that, that sort of joins these two sections together. So I hate the double-minded. Who are the double-minded? Those are the people that come alongside uh, people like this psalmist. And they say things like, yeah, I'm, I'm looking to get to the exit hole of this pipe. I'm trying to make progress. Hey, by the way, why don't we just explore this offshoot? Doesn't that shadow look nice? These are the people that are trying to have it both ways. These are the people that want to live for the world and Jesus, maybe, on Sunday mornings. And the psalmist is saying, I hate the double-minded. I want wholehearted, entire commitment to the truth of the Scriptures. That's what he's saying. I love your Torah. Verse 114, you are my hiding place and my shield. Where he goes for refuge and what he uses to protect himself is God himself how? Well, look at verse, at the end of verse 114. Because I hope in your word. So what makes the protection of God active? What makes it actually protective? It's the hope, isn't it? We're here for a reason, and there's going to be a reward. And where's the hope come from? It comes from the word, doesn't it? So if you don't trust, if you don't believe, if you don't hope, if you don't have the content of the teaching of the scriptures... There isn't going to be any shield. There isn't going to be any hiding place. He warns the wicked, the evildoers, away from him in verse 115. Depart from me, you evildoers, that I may keep the commandments of my God. Depart from me, you evildoers. You hear what he's doing? He is dismissing people from his life. There is not a doubt in my mind that all of us have things that we need to dismiss from our lives. You need to dismiss perhaps access to things that you don't need to have access to. You need to dismiss uh, the people that are telling you these false narratives. You need to dismiss your openness to what they're saying. You need to dismiss these alternative versions of reality. From, that, that, are, that are swimming all around us in the culture. You need to dismiss those, those things. There, there may be people talking to you, urging you to leave your spouse. Dismiss them. Depart from me, you evildoers. Don't listen to those people. Don't, if they come around, go the other way. Get away from them. Depart from me, you evildoers, that I may keep the commandments of my God. And then in verses 116 and 117, he's going to ask the Lord to uphold or support him. Verse 116 Uphold me according to your promise that I may live, and let let me not be put to shame in my hope. Hold me up that I may be safe and have regard for your statutes continually. You spurn, he says to the Lord, you spurn all who go astray from your statutes, for their cunning is vain. Uh, literally, he says, for the deception of their deceitfulness. That's what's rendered here. Their cunning is, va- is in vain. The deception of their deceitfulness. These are people that are saying, oh, I'm on the path. And meanwhile, they're down one of those offshoots. Oh, I want to walk the path with you. And, and then the next thing you know, they're plunging into one of those shadows. And, and the psalmist is saying, you spurn them. Do you hear what's happening? He's thinking about the final outcome that gets worked out in people's lives as they disobey. He's thinking about the way that God applies the future judgment even now in the course of life. 119, all the wicked of the earth you discard like dross. So the Lord is like a refiner of some precious metal and He heats it up and then He takes the dross And he says, that's what the wicked of the earth are. This guy knows the outcome. This guy knows the end. And because this is what God does to the wicked. End of verse 119. Therefore, I love your testimonies. He loves the Bible because the Bible keeps him from being discarded dross. That's why he loves the Bible. And and I think it's in view of this application of God's judgment that results in him saying in verse 120, essentially, that he fears The terrible judgment of God. My flesh trembles for fear of you. It's like his his body is bristling with goosebumps. My flesh bristles for fear of you. For I am afraid of your judgments. In this last section, verses 121 through 128, last section we're going to consider today. He says, I have done what is just and right. These are words that are associated with God's own character. God identifies Himself as a God who is abounding in steadfast love and truth, a God who does what is uh, righteous and what is just. This is what the Lord says of Himself. And the psalmist is identifying with the Lord. He's saying, "I've, I've done what you want, so don't leave me to my oppressors. Give your servant, verse 122, a pledge of good. Let me experience now... The, re- the reward that you've promised. Give me a pledge of good. Let, me, let not the insolent oppress me. My eyes long for your salvation and for the fulfillment of your righteous purchase. I'm longing for what you've said is out the other side of this pipe. Verse 124, deal with your servant according to your steadfast love. Lord, I'm trying to enact your character just and right. Verse 121, You enact your character. Give me your steadfast love. And teach me your statutes. These are the big words about who God is in the Bible. This is is the character of God. He's just, he's right, and and he exercises steadfast love. And the psalmist is saying, I'm identified with you, and I want to be treated in accordance with your character. Verse 125, I am your servant. You define who I am. My identity is sourced in you, the psalmist is saying. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. You know what I think he's saying? He's saying something like this. There's a discrepancy, discrepancy between everything your word teaches and the way the world appears and seems to me. So give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. I need understanding to understand why it doesn't seem like your word is true. That's what he's I think that's what he's saying. Then verse 126 seems to support this. It is time for the Lord to act. For your law has been broken. All these people are disobeying the word. Disobeying God's instructions. And so he says, it's time Lord. It's time for you to act. And then he uses language that's normally applied to the breaking of the covenant. But he applies it to the breaking of the Torah. The disobedience to the scriptures. It is time for the Lord to act. God is going to go into action. God, there will come a day when the Lord will uphold His standards. There will come a day when the Lord will punish all those who have led people astray. And because of that, because of what verse 126 says, look at the therefores in 127 and 128. Therefore, I love your commandments. I love your commandments because one day you're going to act. And I love them more than gold, more than fine gold. Why does he love the commandments of God more than money? Because money can't teach you how to please God. Money can't teach you how to avoid the almighty wrath of God on judgment day. Money cannot do that for you. And so the scriptures are more valuable than money. If you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever, uh, we, we don't want you to be discarded like dross. We don't want you to come to Judgment Day and your heritage be regret and remorse. What we want for you is for you to love the teaching of the Bible. And, and we want you to experience God's love that was shown when He sent His Son to, to draw people that had rebelled against Him, people that were defiling His creation, people that were ruining this wonderful world that He made. He sent His Son to pay their penalty and to draw them back to Himself. And, and our message to you this morning is God is extending His love to you. And this is your opportunity to turn from the regret and remorse, which are all that you're going to have left, and turn to Jesus. And if you'll come to Him, you will experience what this psalmist is talking about. And, and you can have life but you got to turn and you got to trust and you got to start making progress with us through the path. Not saying that what you do saves you, but what you do shows that you really believe what the Maker said, the instructions that He gives. Look at verse 128. I consider all your precepts to be right. All God's precepts, the psalmist is saying, I consider all of them to be upright and I hate every false way when we consciously choose to sin we're saying that precept of the Lord's I don't think it's the best thing for me right now but if we think he's upright we will hate every false way William Blake wrote this poem addressed to Voltaire and Rousseau and their approach to the world these atheistic philosophers it's called mock-on Mock on, Voltaire Rousseau. And and Blake writes this. Mock on, Voltaire and Rousseau. You know, they're mocking God. They're mocking the truth of the Scriptures. Blake says, mock on, mock on, Voltaire, Voltaire Rousseau. Mock on, mock on, tis all in vain. You throw the sand against the wind, and the wind blows it back again. And every sand becomes a gem Reflected in the beams divine, blown back they blind the mocking eye, but still in Israel's path they shine. The atoms of Democritus and Newton's particles of light are sands upon the Red Sea shore, where Israel's tents do shine so bright. What Blake is saying is that even the mocking of these unbelieving philosophers is going to magnify the glory of God. All they're doing, they're just little people throwing sand into the wind, and that sand is going to be blown back at them, and it's going to be turned to glorious, beautiful gems for the glory of God. Let's pray together. Father, help us to resist the spirit of the age the the snares of the devil and the teachings of the sons of disobedience. And Lord, we pray that you would make us people who love obedience. We pray that you would make us people who because we believe what you've said, because you have taught us and you have given us understanding of your word, we love to walk in your truth. We love the path of righteousness. Lord, we want to honor You this way. We want to show that we think You're a good Father who has loved us. And out of this experience that we've had of Your love, we trust You. And we obey You. And we do what You say gladly with a willing heart. Lord, we pray that You would conform us to the image of Your Son. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.